Yo necesito usar. Oh my god, English woman, English. What are you trying to say? <laughs> I don't know these words. I will not magically infer their meanings. Por qué no? I don't. That's some shit with language. Okay. <laughs> the fact I'm doing a podcast in English is amazing. My second grade speech therapist would have been so proud. <laughs> you should send her your. <laughs> I don't even remember her name. Anyway. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey, guys. You're listening to the kind of bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. I'm recording from outside Richmond, Virginia, where I'm on traditional Powhatan land. And I'm recording in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on traditional Lenape land. Today, we're going to learn about a 20th century queer kami artist and also an Unknown Comet Chaser. Oh, okay. Kind yeah, I, I, I don't know that much about astrology. Astronomy? That thing, yes. Yeah, not the not astrology. Either way, stars are involved. <laughs> the only comet in my life is what I used to scrub my bathtub, but I imagine your scientist is probably working with something a lot more interesting than my powdered bleach. Probably, yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Gases. Gases. Lots of gases, apparently. Okay. I mean, I get that way after too much tofu. But, um, all right. So what have you you got for us today? So today we're going to learn about Caroline Lucretia Herschel. Born in 1750 in Hanover, Germany. Okay. Really quick. Did she happen to work as, like, a a cleaner or something for a scientist? Kind of. Okay, I might be familiar with this person. Okay, good. All right. Good. I I mean, like, yeah, she's apparently really well-known, honestly. Okay. All right. Well, we're we're about to find out how well-known. How well-known. You'll see in a second. Okay, cool. So she was the daughter of an Isaac Herschel and an Anna Ilse Moritzen. Mommy was a housewife. Dad was a musician. He was an oboist for the Hanoverian foot guards who would eventually rise to become the bandmaster. Oh. So apparently oh, okay. when you had a, a like a, an army back then, you had musicians in the front. <laughs> I mean, you gotta keep it entertaining on the battlefield. <laughs> At that point, it's just a lot of swords. And people take a very long time to die sometimes. So they just... might as well go out listening to something lovely. I don't understand. It's very weird. Yeah, hey, fancy schmancy, kind of a big deal in the 18th century. Oh, okay. So Hanover's in northern Germany. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to get into exactly where. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> he didn't have a formal education, but he wanted his kids to have it. So there were four sons and two daughters. And he fostered academic discussions at home. Guess who hated this? Was it the mother? It was the mother. Ah, was it because he fostered it among his sons and daughters? Exactly. Ah, giving these damn girls ideas. She was like, fine, let the boys learn if they have to, but the girls, they will not take part of education. And Mm. Caroline especially 
was not going to because she had her own plans for Caroline and that was she was going to be used as her like like helping hand around the house for the rest of her life. Like not to get married or rather not to be married off, but Yep. Was, was she the youngest? I think so, but it also didn't help that at age 10 she got typhus and it straight up stunted her growth. Oh. Okay. So she never grew past four foot three. You know what? It's shitty, but from the mother's perspective, I bet she could. I bet the mother was like, well, great. Now I definitely can't marry her off. Yeah. No, that's exactly what it was. It was, this is like, she's literally destined to be an old maid. Like, there's nothing. But dad would still encourage her learning, and it would, of course, be behind mom's back. Okay. Didn't get the name of her sister or three of her brothers, Mm -hmm. but I did get one brother. His name is William Herschel. He's pretty well known in the science world. Oh, okay. Specifically astronomy. Yeah. Because, spoiler, he's the dude who discovered Uranus. (laughs) I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) 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 He he found his way in your podcast closet, Megan, and discovered Uranus. (laughs) You know, when he made that big announcement, there are other people snickering, too. Be like, really, dude? That's really what you're going to call it? Well, it was originally going to be like, it was going to be named after King George. It was like Geranius or something, and then it got renamed into Uranus. I don't know who thought that was a good idea, but all right, whatever. It made me giggle. (laughs) You're welcome. All right, so your scientist's brother found Uranus. Cool. <laughs> Sounds so dirty. <laughs> I mean, that does fit in with what we were... It was. Now I think now you have to put something involving dildos in there. Sorry, Mom. Ugh. Sorry. <clears throat> so, y'all ever hear about the Seven Years' War? Oh, jeez. That may or may not have been relevant to a book that we just read for our book club. I don't know. Did it last seven years? You know, I heard about it once or twice. It was like, honestly, when I hear about wars in history, my eyes glaze over. There's so many, especially in Europe. They're, it's just so boring to me. I pulled up Crash Course History because I like sometimes refer to them for like refreshers. Mm-hmm. And the minute John started talking about it, I was like, no, no done just a bunch of dudes killing one another exactly and they say women are too emotional (laughs) (laughs) really really bro you all need to chill so it was about land apparently and trade and stupid power hungry bullshit and it's actually considered to be the first world war even though we have a world war one it was literally fought on every continent in the world because it was like france versus england and it was colonies all over the world Oh, yeah. England yeah. pretty much owned, like, fucking everything. Yeah. Okay, so did that take place in the late 1700s, the same time that your scientist is, like, coming of age? Um, around that time, yeah. Okay. I don't It wasn't, like, early in her life, but it was definitely in her lifetime. Okay. And Hanover, the place that she grew up in, was part of it. But, it like, Hanover and Britain shared the same monarch under King George. Okay. They were fighting under England's name. Okay. For stupid bullshit reasons. Yeah. The point is, during the Seven Years' 
war. France seized Hanover, and William left. He peaced out. I mean, Hanover was later seized back, but at that point he was like, nope, I'm gone. And then he later decided to pull Caroline out of Hanover with him, much to mom's protest because she legitimately, like, lost help, like, lost a hand. She was a okay. worker. Yeah. William and Caroline, they, like, yeeted out of Germany and into Bath, England. And okay. in 1772, because of William's musical education, he made money working as an organist and taking care of Caroline. He then began to give her music lessons, and she mm-hmm. would start giving her own musical performances, which were actually pretty successful. Oh, okay. Yeah. She would give performances, like, five times a week. Mm-hmm. And she would only do it in places that her brother worked at because she was crazy dependent on him. It was a really close sibling relationship. Mm-hmm. And this is obviously not great because it can end up being a double-edged sword. You get dependent on each other. Yeah. But they were free to do whatever they wanted. Like They didn't have mom saying, no, you can't do that. Yes, you can do that. Whatever. Mm-hmm. William started picking up hobbies, mathematics, and astronomy. So I don't know who in their right mind would think mathematics is a hobby. <laughs> Apparently, everybody was about astronomy back then, which is a whole different thing. Anyway, he goes through it. And then Caroline saw what he was doing and was like, hey, bro, can I get in on this? And he was like, yeah, and gave her like a starter telescope. And he would also give her little lessons like here and there. Oh, and they were okay. literally called little lessons for Lina. So, like, little math lesson for Lina, and then little astronomy lesson for Lina. I guess Lina, because it's German. Soon enough, he would get obsessed with his hobby. And in 1781, it went from hobby to his brand new job. Okay. So, what was he up to? Astronomy in that time period was huge. It was kind of like a form of entertainment. People would go to these observatories and just watch as celestial bodies were pointed out to them. And like new constellations, comets, planets, moons, whatever you can think of, they were rapidly being discovered in this time period mm-hmm. because telescopes were starting to make it big. Yeah. And those telescopes, like William was ma- like making a lot of those. He was making amazing ones and looking at stars through them. And he was selling them to people and gifting them to universities in the name of the king. And he was making a name for himself. And this was the year he discovered Uranus. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. And this obviously caught King George's attention, which meant a salary of 200 pounds a year as the king's full-time court astronomer. Well, that is a big deal. Yeah, right? To be like the, the court appointed one. Okay. Exactly. And then with this new title, in 1782, they moved from Bath, England to Datchet near Windsor. Okay. It was at this point that Caroline stopped performing. She instead became her brother's helper. She would help him grind glass for the telescopes. He would look through one of the stars and yell things down to her. And she would write whatever he said down and take his astronomical data. And then she would crunch them down until they made sense. So if he was away and somebody needed something. She was the authority. They would have to ask her for her services. Oh. And people started to recognize that. Mm-hmm. And all of her time when he was home went into taking care of him, being his assistant. And that didn't give her much time to, like, be herself or do her own thing. 
Mm-hmm. It was only when he was like away for work that she could focus on what she wanted in the astronomy field. So it's still 1782. William, he goes to Germany to give this huge-ass telescope to the University University of Göttingen. And while he was away, Caroline was like, I'm just going to sweep the sky and see what shows up. So, <laughs> right? What showed up? What's a comet? Oh, okay. You're like, what? What is this? Right? Mm-hmm. She obviously super excited, writes on coordinates, draws the position of his comet in relation to the stars around it, and then she writes up a report to send to her brother's friend. She's like, hey, I know you and my brother are cool. I don't mean to bother you, but I was just wondering if you were aware that this comet existed. Mm-hmm. She's super humble about it, presents this comet, mm-hmm. and then it's verified by her brother when he gets back. So people start to notice her as well. And the comet is named Miss Herschel's Comet or the First Lady's Comet. You know, it's satisfying that People actually attributed the discovery to her because you've covered people who have been like, hey, guys, look what I figured out. And everyone's like, that's nice. You're a woman. We'll credit it to a man. It's going to go to a man. Yep. But it sounds like that is not the case in this instant, which is pretty satisfying, especially for the late 1700s. Yeah. Like, like, like what? What is happening? She starts to learn about nebulae and deep space objects so she can help differentiate them between a comet and around 1786 her brother meets a wealthy widow named mary bernie pitt mm. two years later they are married william starts to search through the skies less and spends more time with his wife sex it always gets in the way i know <laughs> this causes tension between caroline and mary she reportedly disliked her for taking william away from their hobby yeah 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 it sounds like it was not a hobby it was their career yeah. yeah. It, it was just one of those things where, like, wait, what do you mean? Like, no, don't, what do you, life, life outside this? What are you talking about? Yeah. Later, things do get smoothed. It's reported, though, that before things got smoothed out, she had written some nasty things in her diary about Mary. Mm. Yeah, like, it was, like, blaming her for everything. But then, like, burned all of her diaries after she and Mary became cool. Okay, I mean... Like, we all have those off days. Yeah. Like, I don't know how they know what's in her diary. And and in your diary, like, you're going to talk shit. Yeah, I don't really know how they know what's in there. But I do, like, it was very well known that she, like, didn't, wasn't, like, super fond of her originally. Okay. The coolness actually shows up when Mary gives birth to Caroline's nephew, John. Ah. And John will grow up to be a brilliant mind. Some of the things he's done, seven Saturn moons and four Uranus moons. They they really kept it in the family. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, he created the cyanotype, which is a photographic process that involves the final product being cyan blue. So that's uh, how people made copies of drawings, which is how blueprints were made. Mm, okay. That's why they're blue. He investigated color blindness, looked into the power of UV rays. He was bouncing up and down and everywhere. He did a lot of great stuff. Dude was a genius. Caroline was the one who introduced him to astronomy. She was the one who, like, like gave him his first astronomy book and sparked the interest in science, and they were, like, mad close. Okay. Her and her nephew. William pulls away. He convinces the king to pay Caroline a salary for her work as his apprentice. Like, 
hey, my sister here is doing a lot of work for me. She deserves money. And it was like joked that the queen should be paying her because she was the lady comet chaser. She was still given a salary of 50 pounds a year by the royal family. I mean, it's not the 200 her brother had, but it's something. It's, she was the first paid astronomer woman, like, in England. And I think his argument was you could get, like, a male assistant and they would be 100 pounds a year. Yeah, but my sister, because she has been burdened with being a female, you can pay her less. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Real shit. I mean, that shit's still going on today, but whatever. Caroline would go on to discover seven more comets in her lifetime, ending in 1797. And every time she did, she would make it known humbly. I bring this up because I came across an article from a fellow at the University of Leeds. Mm -hmm. Her name is Emily Winterburn that focused solely on Caroline's modesty during her career. Oh, okay. So in her words... Emily thinks that Caroline stayed humbled in order to keep, like, to be more palatable to the public. Yeah, yeah. A loud woman who said, this is my discovery and I'm proud, like, I'm proud of it would have major pushback, especially in the late 1700s. She would, like, she never admitted it, but she, like, went out of her way to play the game and get that recognition in her lifetime. She would constantly go, oh, I'm just letting you know in the name of science, you know, just by the way, don't mean to bother you. But she, like, straight up rode a horse once in the middle of the night to be the first person to bring a comet to the public's attention. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, it, that one was her last comet, but that one was over, it was a six-hour trip, 26 miles, side saddle, just to get it set. Oh, because she's female. She can't ride that horse proper. Exactly. Exactly. So after her last comet discovery, she would continue to sweep the sky with her telescopes but she moved out close to them, but still in her own space. And during that period between 1822, she focused on observing, drawing, and recording known comets. Each drawing became more and more accurate. Mm-hmm. We're talking like the full anatomy of a comet. So sometimes they just like made little blips and it looks like a, like a comma in the, second, and like in the sky. But then, you know, the tail was being differentiated and like the core was being differentiated and her drawings really helped the scientific community understand what a comet was and what they were made up of. Okay. Can you can you give at least me a refresher on what a comet is? Because I feel like I'm prone or I might be likely to mix it up with an asteroid or a meteorite or it's there's a yeah, there's a lot. So it's it's more like gases rather like an asteroid is like a solid chunk okay. flying through like a rock. Meteors are things being burned up in the earth like the atmosphere. Comets are more, like, yeah, gas-based. Okay. I know. I'm just curious for a really basic description because, I mean, I I couldn't tell you the difference. I wouldn't know if maybe, like, an asteroid and a comet are both the same, but it's they're named differently based on how they come into proximity of, like, the Earth kind of thing. I don't know. A nucleus of the gas, the hydrogen cloud around it, the coma in between, and then a tail that's following it, like the leftover gas that's being left behind the trail. Okay, so it's just... If that makes any kind sense. Kind of all just vapor. Yes. Okay. As opposed to an asteroid, which is like rock. Okay. Yes. There's like a dust tail, too, and an ion tail. Okay. It gets into yeah, it. I imagine if maybe it's picking up little stray particles along the way. Space crap. Yeah, and I mean, like, this was, like, observable to her. So she's like, what is this? Why are there little parts? 
and impressive for the the telescopes of the time to be able to distinguish all those differences. Yeah, man. And I mean, William Herschel was like really good at making telescopes. So like she had the best of the best. Mm-hmm. Like he made sure to keep making telescopes for her to make things easier. Like one that swept like horizontally and then another one that did both horizontally and vertically made things easier for her as she moved up in her like expertise. Okay. So he was like he was supportive of her. No, and that's that's great to have that type of interest fostered and encouraged and supported. And a lot of the time for people prior to the 20th century, it's I feel like it's usually the father who steps into that role, but yeah, I don't really know like I mean like the dad was saying, "Hey, you should learn stuff," but brother was the one that really like stepped in and I guess was like and ran with it. I mean, that's great. Like they were just that worked great for Caroline. Really close. Yeah. So, between her and her brother, they discovered about 2500 nebulae, which are like deep space objects, like oh. other gas formations okay. and like stars and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, a, for- a nebula is a formation in space which is constituted mostly of helium, dust and other gases in various concentrations. All right. It's also believed to be one of the primary stages in the formation of stars. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So there was, like, a huge, like, I guess, catalog of them that they made Mm -hmm. with each other. And then in 1822, William dies. Mm. Yeah. It's after a long illness. I don't know what he died of, but uh, Caroline is devastated. And how how old is she at that point when her brother passes away? (sighs) She was in her 70s, yeah. That's super impressive for the... the Early 1800s. Yeah, yeah. She passed away in the, uh, like, in her 90s. That's... Like, late 90s. That's impressive these days. Yeah. Wow, like, okay. What? <laughs> that just further proves our very informal hypothesis. Our very informal speculation that scientists and artists, they just live forever. They do. They have that work to fuel them forward. Yeah, we tell Jeff, we're like, come back. I haven't finished my research yet. I have a paper published in about six months. We can talk after that. We'll revisit this matter. <laughs> we'll get to it, I promise. Let me just put a pin in it. <laughs> but yeah, Caroline is devastated. Mm. And she returns back to Hanover, Germany, and immediately regrets this decision. No one at home understands her. Yeah, yeah. She has John back in England... She really misses him, like her nephew. Mm -hmm. And he was the one that took over the observatory, but he would be the only one that really understands, like, her love for the science. And there, like, she was this weird local celebrity in Hanover, which she thought was really funny, and she kind of made fun (laughs) of. But (laughs) she's like, I don't know what's happening. Like, she was – I guess she had this really, like, look, I didn't do anything. But she did. She did some pretty solid shit. Mm -hmm. So – she was honored for her comet discovery. She was honored for her work for her brother. And at the end of the day, she just lived out her life in England and then passed away on January 8th of 1948. So she's a really important historical figure, obviously because she discovered celestial bodies and contributed to astronomy for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And also because, you know, she had an immense influence on two major names in science, both her brother and her nephew. You know, without her support, William wouldn't have been able to start up his own hobby. Like, she really helped him get through a lot of the beginning stages, Mm -hmm. taking care of him, feeding him, helping him grind the glass, being there for him. 
And also, like, helping to nurture this little boy and, like, figure out his own thing. And then she was the first paid woman in astronomy, and she was a model for other women who to follow. And, like, all of these things, they just add up. And her impact on the astronomy world was astronomical. Oh, we've done quite a few episodes (laughs) without a really bad pun, but... There you are. There you are, Milena. That one was just... Just for you. Out of this world. Ah! (laughs) All right, all right. We'll stop. We'll stop. I promise, guys. I promise. No mess. But no, you're you're right. For her to be the first woman to get her foot in the door, I mean, she she paved the way for other women to come after her and to go even farther. So that, it's, yeah, like you said, it's a big deal. Little things. Little steps. Mm. So now you've heard of her. So she's not the person who I have heard about before. I was thinking there's an instance where, I think it was more mid to late 1800s, there was someone who worked in in the same line of work and got pissed at one of his employees and was like, my housekeeper could do a better job. Oh. And the housekeeper was like, okay. And she did an amazing job. Oh. And yeah, (laughs) I'll have to find the name and throw it out there because perhaps that'll be someone you could cover in the future. But it was just Heck yeah. kind of like said initially as a joke. And then she was like, yeah, okay. All right. I'll do the thing. Yeah. And ran with it. And she did a great job. And I think it was in the, like I said, the same line of work. But I'll have to look it up. Okay. So that is Caroline. What's the rest of her name? Herschel. Caroline Herschel. She had nothing to do with Uranus. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a child. <laughs> we both are. Definitely not 30 years old. Oh, my God. Tell me about your lady. All right. She's a lady. Well. Oh, whoa, whoa. She's a lady. <laughs> oh, my God. Sorry, what? <laughs> so, I'm doing something a little different today. Because we're in June. How gay are we going? What's up? Oh, we're getting gay. Yes. Because it's June. It's Pride Month, right? And Mm -hmm. as awesome as it is to celebrate, like, all forms of non-heteronormativity, this is the time of year that corporations roll up and they're suddenly all gay. All the gay, all the time. And that shit gets old. Yeah. Right? Because a lot of the time it's just performative allyship. I will say one exception is Ben and Jerry's. Oh, they're really good. They're really solid. Oh, they're amazing. They're gay. Every month of the year. <laughs> and yeah. that's what we want. Always. If I'm at like not oldie and getting ice cream, I will always get Ben and Jerry's. I'm like, I might be a, like a broke bitch, but I will pay $5 for a pint of your stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're pretty solid. But for a lot of companies, end of day, it's just exploitative capitalism, Right. Trying to cash in on this, like, mainstream social movement without doing any of the Uh fucking work themselves. So, in light of that, I wanted to cover a queer, commie, feminist, visual artist. I. Okay, you'd think if you Googled that, there would be, like, a few options. No. No. There's only one. What name do you think of? I don't know. I was just rolling along with it. I have no idea. Oh, yeah. No, you're right. No, you're... I was like... Oh my god, Milena knows. <laughs> like one name just kept coming up 
over and over and over again. Frida Kahlo. Frida Kahlo. <laughs> I'm doing Frida Kahlo today. Yes! I knew, I, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. When I said it and then you asked, I was like, well, should I know? And then I immediately thought of Frida Kahlo. And I was like, yep. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know the commie part. But I was like, that's perfect because... Actually, I knew the commie part. I was kind of suspecting the queer part, but I wasn't positive. All right. Well, between between you and I, we'll, we'll, we'll come full circle today in understanding all aspects of her life. Fuck yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm doing great Apollo. I've kind of put it off because, like, you're not too keen to do Madame Curie. Because, like, if someone had to name a, scient- a woman scientist, that's usually the only person they can name, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, and like Frida Kahlo, like her image is just heavily saturated in the women art kind of merchandising, right? And I was like, uh, nah. But then once I started looking into her, I was like, wow, there's a lot of shit that I actually don't know about her. And that's because like her legacy as a queer, disabled, communist feminist has been sanitized for commercial consumption. Oh. Yeah. So while. Everyone does know her name because she's become the face of, like, women artists in, like, the 20th century. I don't think people really know that much about her. And I I definitely didn't. Yeah, I don't I mean. I knew the basics. I obviously know her culture and I know her disability and her weird relationship with he who must be must not be named. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. Yeah. Fuck that guy. And, like, her artwork, and I, like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I know enough about her either, so I can't wait to hear. Yeah, I, I kind of had these preconceptions of just generalizations, but reading more about her, I was like, wow, she's really been, like I said, sanitized to just become this commercial icon that people can profit from. And I'll, I'll tell you who's profiting from it later on. But... Today, we are headed to Mexico City, and that's for Frida. She was born in 1907 to middle-class parents. Mm, That's how it always starts. And you know what? Just, like, for your Caroline, like, well, I guess they were technically English at the time, but Frida's dad was German. He was a German photographer. Oh, nice. Yeah, he immigrated to Mexico. I guess he had already had a prior marriage. Not sure how it ended, but he had two daughters from that. And he met his second wife in Mexico, and that's when Frida was the first of the two. And then she had a younger sister as well. Oh, man. What's it like to be yeah. Frida Kahlo's younger sister? I don't... Well, well... <laughs> she makes a guest star appearance later on as well. I'm already super excited. <laughs> uh, so, okay, I don't know details on this, but apparently the two older sisters from the previous marriage... We're raised in a convent. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if the like the second wife was like, mm, no. Oh, that's funny. Don't have details on that, but I was like, I, there's a story there that I just. Oh my god, we need the time machine. Ah! Ah, okay. Who do 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 do? Who will solve the mysteries of time and space in between? It's the my favorite feminist time machine. All right, now that we've got on that time machine adventure. <laughs> All right, we're back. We're back. Um, and what I can tell you is that Frida grew up during the Mexican Revolution. Viva! 
Mexico. Yes. Uh, that took place from 1910 to 1920. Uh, basically, a dictator was overthrown, democracy was asserted, and there was this tremendous pushback against colonizing forces, like because Spain and the United States of America. They're fucking dicks. Yeah. Yeah. So this socio-political rebellion, like, really impacted Frida as she was growing up, and sometimes she would even give her age, or her, her birth year is 1910 to coincide with a revolution, as opposed to 1907. <laughs> she was riding it really hard. I I would. I'd be like, oh, it's only three years. Let me just budge that. Well, yeah, there's that too. And Frida, she said her childhood quote, my childhood was marvelous because although my father was sick, he, had, he was prone to seizures, he was an immense example to me of tenderness, of work, for photography and also painting, and above all, understanding all of my problems. Oh. Yeah, so while Frida lived in a, like, upper-middle-class comfort, she did have health issues from a young age, which I think her father was able to empathize with because he himself was prone to seizures. Right. And apparently he would have a fit at least once every month. So when Frida was six, she contracted polio, and that left her right leg, like, disfigured and shorter than her left. Fuck. Early on, like as a kid, Frida is already experiencing what it's like to feel like an other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And in, and in early family pictures, you know, the way she would sit for the photograph, like you, she would hide her leg under her dresses and try to, you know, completely obscure the fact that it was different. Right. So for high school, Frida, she was enrolled in a top Mexican city prep school. Like her dad was very adamant. He was like, she's smart. She's going to get an education. Good. Yeah. And it's really cool because she was only about 30-something girls who were admitted, and this is with a student body of over 1,500. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they were really kind of on the first wave of these young women who, as teenagers, were receiving the same quality education as the boys. I'm just going to say I would have had a fucking blast. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? On our time machine detour... We uh, we can test those waters, too. <laughs> we make a little pit stop. Be like, how did she handle all of those men? Okay, no, how would Milena handle all those men? We are not even there for her anymore. That's fair. I mean, but, like, they're all, like, boys at that moment. I, I, I'd hang out with the teachers. Easy prey. Easy prey. Oh, my goodness. Fine. Well, okay, here's, here's one thing you will like about Frida being in school. So, at some point, she was expelled. <laughs> I am not sure for what, but Frida was all like, this is bullshit. And she complained to the minister of education himself. Oh. And the minister promptly turned around and gave some shit to the principal saying, quote, if you can't manage a little girl like that, you are not fit to be a director of such an institution. (laughs) Which is like really sexist as fuck, but like it got Frida back in school. Like, she was able to play that card to her benefit. Like, what did she say? I have have no idea. Apparently, her and her group of friends were, like, always pulling pranks, and they were, like, very mischievous, and which probably also made them a bit of the cool kids. I don't know. (laughs) But, I mean, she she was fucking feisty. Uh, Yeah, I mean, she's fucking Frida Kahlo. (laughs) 
<laughs> and like it's during this time at prep school when Frida's starting really setting herself apart like through her outfits. Oh yeah. So she's best known later on for wearing like traditional Mexican dresses. And like that dress style really lends itself to like one covering up her like bad leg, but two also aligning with her like nationalism and pride in her, her Mexican heritage because she's right. she's biracial. So like oh. during the Mexican Revolution, the emphasis was on being a proud Mexican, like and proud of your Mex- Mexican identity and heritage. And the term is called Mexicanidad. Mm-hmm. And that later is a central theme to Frida's art. But for now, as a teenager, Frida's like aligning herself with the everyday person with her political beliefs because she was a flaming commie and against American imperialism. <laughs> Mexicanidad. I was like, no one told me about this. Everybody knows about her. <laughs> I love the picture of her in a suit, though. She's ready to fuck you up. Yeah. Yeah. She's a queen. I know. Yeah, every now and again, you see a image of, like, a, a woman in a suit or something. You're like, yeah, I'm not straight. Not straight. Not straight. <laughs> oh. It's fine. Nope. Oh, that's Hi. okay. If you scroll down a little more and you roll into it. Like a picture of her and fucking Rivera's Riviera, excuse me, and that just kills all sorts of horny. Well, it's funny you should say that because also during her teenage years, when Frida meets the famous mural painter Diego Rivera. Oh my god! Yeah, he's he's actually unintentionally made a guest star appearance in a few episodes that we've done. He he has been described <sighs> as toad-like. That's perfect. He's de- But, like, please don't disrespect toads like that. Oh, there's a picture of him looking over her shoulder, and I want to stab his face. Oh, that is 100% on the show notes. Ugh. You guys can check it out. I know I was looking up images of Frida, and that came up, and I was like, that's so creepy. I have to include it. Oh, can you also include the one where she's literally hugging his belly? He's got a, he's he's heavy set, as you can tell from Milena's description. Oh my god, I'm I'm sorry. I like he's oh, um, uh, uh. he he was one of like the biggest artists of the day. I don't. He was considered one of like the big three. I don't understand. Right, they they were all public mural painters, and they were all riding like a wave of nationalism from Mexican Revolution. Right, like within their art, highlighting the experiences of the of the everyday Mexican over Eurocentric ideals. Now, keep in mind, so the the Diego that you described is frogolite and heavy set and not the most attractive. In nineteen twenty two, at the age of fifteen. Frida saw him while he was at her prep school painting a mural. And she, like, turned to one of her friends and was like, oh, my God, I want to have his babies one day. Ew! I know, I know, I shit you not. And that is the exact response, Uh. like, her friend had. It was Uh. like, (laughs) girl, no, no. No, you're better than that. It's like you're screaming at the big screen while you're watching a horror movie. You're like, get out of the house. I know. I know. You're like, this isn't going to end well. <laughs> oh, so, my God. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, and he he was undoubtedly a really important artist, but oh, not best looking. Oh, um, and just not the best person either. But that's a whole other thing. I, yeah, he was twenty years older than Frida. Mm. You know, heavy set, frog like. But I mean, Frida, she was like, I'm gonna get some of that one day. Ew. So, teenage romance infatuation aside. Okay. I can respect it, though, because, I mean, you remember me when I was in high school? Oh, you had much better taste. I This is true, but I got what I wanted. <laughs> and Frida did as well. Exactly. So I understand. She did. A type of determination. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. All right. Well, when she wasn't fantasizing over him, um, Frida, she was on track to... Like, head to medical school after high school. What? Yeah. She was like, I'm going to go, like, go to medical school and be a doctor. God damn. I, this is actually hitting really close to home to someone I happen to co-host a podcast with. Now Fuck that I think of it. <laughs> <laughs> I am emotionally uh, vulnerable right now. <laughs> fine. Just drink your hard seltzer. I, oh, God. Am I the, am I the reincarnated, uh... Soul of Frida Kahlo, because that would be. <laughs> oh God! I mean, you looked out on the on the unibrow. No, I don't got the unibrow. No, no, that's where I come in. That's where you. We are collectively. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, end of day. Neither one of us is good with flowers, though. So oh, that sucks. Fair. Yeah, they all die under my rain. Yeah. I keep fuzzy things alive. That's got to count for something, right? It does. Wow. So, obviously, the medical school thing did not work out. Well, plans changed when Frida was in a absolutely horrific bus accident when she was 18 years old. Right. That I do remember. I didn't realize it was so young, though. Yeah, so her and her boyfriend at the time, they were on a public bus. They were heading back to her house after school, and a trolley had gone off the tracks and just, like, slammed right into the bus. Fuck. Now, the boyfriend, amazingly, walked away fine. Totally unscathed. Oh, no. Frida got fucked up. Oh, no. Like, already, her bad leg, her right leg, it was, it was, her foot, her leg shattered. Mm. Broken pelvis. Collarbone, ribs, a dislocated shoulder. Everything. Her spine was broken in, like, three places. Oh, my God. And then there was, like, a steel rod that had punctured her lower abdomen. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, because that caused infertility later on. And, like, among, like, the twisted and mangled mass of, like, steel and people, there was Frida, bloodied and broken and Covered in gold. Gold? Apparently someone had been carrying powdered gold pigment on the bus. Oh. And in the accident, obviously it bust. And so, like, there she was, covered in gold. Oh. Just gold pigment. Sure. Like, that must have been such a fucking surreal scene. <laughs> I, oh, I would. Oh, man. That, I would take my time machine there. I'm not rubbernecking the horrific bus accident that, like, mangled Frida Kahlo. I don't know if I would... S- would we stop it? I can't... can't fuck with 
timeline. Right, right. You can go watch if you want, and I'm going to go find myself some street food. Some giant ass avocados. I'm bringing them back with me on the time machine. Cart avocados. God damn. Let's go back to Colombia. I'm game. (laughs) (sighs) This time you order your own food. I feel personally offended as a gringa who speaks Spanish. Look, you spent months trying to learn words of like food, I and I still you, ended up ordering for you. <laughs> yeah, but I could, I could, on a basic level, read a menu and get by. I'm so proud of you. That's by all myself, I, need. I could, I could read it and say that's what I want. I just can't. <laughs> Pointing say it. at the picture, e- esto, yes. por favor, con mucho salsa. <laughs> yes, my Spanish is terrible. We've been over this. This is well established, and my English is okay. And I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So it, unsurprisingly, it took months for Frida to recover from this. But like, even during her lifetime, she had over thirty surgeries to treat the damage that was left from this crash. Thirty surgeries. Holy shit. I mean, it limited Frida's, like, mobility. It required her to wear, like, supportive braces, like, for her leg and then for her her spine. So kind of like a back brace slash corset. And these things, I mean, they were camouflaged by her really festive traditional dresses and outfits that she would wear. Mm-hmm. Might as well do it up, right? Yeah, and she was already kind of starting to develop her sense of style when she was a teenager. But I'm sure when that happened, that perhaps was an incentive to go bigger and bolder. Mm-hmm. So that way, you know, people aren't paying attention to these things that, you know, kind of inhibit what you can and cannot do in some respects, but, you know, focusing on you as a person. Right. Rather than seeing, you know, uh, a disability first. But that's just speculation on my part. I don't actually know. Honestly, I mean, it worked, right? (laughs) Yeah, I, I think, you know, that was probably just an interest she had to begin with and then just was a way of dealing with all these different aspects. Um, and the challenges she faced in terms of just, you know, what she had to wear, these supportive structures and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But um, so for this this accident, it, it was the catalyst for Frida's creative career. Mm. So as part of her recovery process, Frida, she did she picked up painting. And it was really cool because her parents helped set up a special like easel rig. Yeah. So that way she could like lay down in bed to heal, but she could paint at the same time. <gasps> See, I love dad. Yeah, and her mom helped too. So they had like a easel that would like kind of tilt forward a bit and then also um, a mirror above her so that way she could look up. Because again, she's laying on her back and she might be slightly propped up, but she's not able to sit up at like a 90 degree angle at this point. So she has to be able to lay really low. But still like, thanks mom, thanks dad, like for being there. Yeah, and like she used that type of setup for for years on and off. Mm Mm-hmm. As, as she needed it during, you know, after these various surgeries that she would have. So she's working with oil paints on canvas and also panels. And I, because of this easel setup, they have to be at a fairly reasonable scale because she's painting from bed. Right. So on average, the canvases, they're about like 12 inches on the longest side. You know, and I always thought they were like huge. Well, I could see that because the work Diego did, I mean, he did massive murals. Mm -hmm. But compared to his art, I mean, these were small. Yeah. And in total, she did over 130 paintings, 55 of them being self-portraits. Damn. 
Yeah, and it's the self-portraits that she's most well-known for. Yeah. And for Frida, you know, she's painting what she knew, and that was herself and her own experiences. And, I mean, she only knew what was, I don't know, like, she was mostly in bed, right? So. A a good bit of the time. Yeah. So if you're going to be bedridden, like, you know, you're going to paint maybe yourself, your family members, your friends who come visit you, and that's, that's exactly what she did. That's it, yeah. So she's centering, like, her own narratives into the contents of her paintings. And she's doing so in a really dynamic way. So she's she's self, self-taught. So a little bit of her early works are a little bit kind of loosey-goosey, mm-hmm. but develops her style, you know, over the years. And she's really prioritizing her Mexican identity. So she is not catering to, like, traditional European styles of painting at all. Good. Yeah. And that fits in with the nationalism that she's really um, proud of. Because she's a fucking commie. so her style of painting can be considered magical realism Mm -hmm. so while some of Frida's portrait paintings are very direct in like the observational content others are a little bit more dreamlike like she manifests her own fears and concerns and vulnerabilities like into the paintings right and so sometimes it's a little weird like you're like oh that's a deer and it's being shot by arrows and the head is Frida Kahlo hmm okay (laughs) <laughs> All right. oh yeah i mean that is a pretty well-known one for sure yeah you're yeah. like how did why why <laughs> and like within the mexican art world at the time the focus on making like a woman's personal experience the central theme in an artwork that was not mainstream mm-hmm. yeah because like even though things are still really like bohemian right now mexico city You know, the art is all about nationalism. It's all about the mural paintings. It's all the art for the people. But the little bits and pieces of the human, like, experience, not so much. No, not. It's all these grand narratives. And so Frida's one of a few artists working at the time and obviously the most well-known. We covered Maria Izquierdo, who was working at approximately the same time as Frida Kahlo. Yeah. And her work was doing the same. She was prioritizing and documenting and exploring her own experiences within her paintings. So it took some time, and it was really Frida's work that helped push that and help make that mainstream. Right. But even with that, I mean, throughout her career, Frida's art, like, never quite hit big. It was at points, like, internationally known, but to an extent, she was always living in the shadow of her husband, Diego. Mm. So two years after her bus accident in 1927... So Frida's 20, and she reaches out to Diego, and she shows him some of her paintings. They hit it off. Oh, no. And so two years after that, at the age of 22, Frida marries the 42-year-old Diego. Oh, so gross. I know. But, I mean, by all appearances, like, it looks like Frida really enjoyed playing, like, the doting wife. Ew. I mean, if she likes it. (sighs) their, Their relationship was problematic, especially early on and i i don't doubt that they loved one another but diego was a constant cheater or like toxically so eh, I, I mean that fit in though with like that expected like machismo of the time so gross and part of that was it was you know totally normal if the husband slept around and it was expected that the wife would just put up with it And so Frida, I think she was like, well, fine, fuck you. I'm going to have affairs of my my own. And so, you know, she was intimate with, like, men and women alike. Good. Good for her. How did Diego handle that? 
Well, apparently there was one really big figure in communism. Him and his wife sought asylum in Mexico, and they actually stayed in Frida and Diego's like house for a bit. Mm-hmm. And Frida had an intimate affair with this guy. Oh. And later on, he was assassinated. And I guess Frida, if she was kind of pissed at Diego, he, she would always kind of throw it in his face that she had slept with that guy. <laughs> but apparently, and I can't, I had like one source suggest this. Apparently, Diego was like, yeah, that's cool if you sleep with women. I think in part of it was like that sexism of not seeing two women being intimate together as like a legitimate relationship yeah i don't know how i love about the relationship where it's like any relationships is like yeah you can't have sex with any other like of what i identify with but everything else is fair game and i i feel like like those kind of relationships are usually more controlling than they are like fair yes yeah yeah i mean i there's a lot of material out there on the relationship, and so I just wanted to get kind of the basics. So I did not do a deep dive into it because right. I honestly could have spent the entire episode just talking about that. Mm. So I don't know the full depth of it, but that was an aspect of things. Yeah. And, like, early on in their marriage, Frida's fertility issues became apparent. Mm. Right? Because the trauma from the bus accident, she wasn't able to carry a child a full term. So... During her life, she had numerous miscarriages. And I mean, like as a teen, like she legitimately wanted to become a mother someday. So I just imagine that was just so painful and devastating for her. Now, after the Mexican Revolution and kind of going in the 1930s, Mexican anti-communist sentiment was becoming more prominent. Okay. So for Frida and Diego being communists themselves, they were like, eh. Maybe we should get out of Mexico City right yeah. now. Where'd they go? United States. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, they, they were able to go there because Diego was offered work. Okay. Which, kind of ironic because his first job in the States was painting a mural at um, the San Francisco Wall Street building. Huh. Yeah. That's hilarious. Funny for a communist. But... It is at that same time, that same trip, when Diego and Frida were in San Francisco. That's when our sculptor from a few episodes, Ruth Asawa, first met him. Oh, right. Yeah. Just a little side note. But uh, yeah, so they're in San Francisco. They go to New York City. They're in Detroit. And this is all for Diego's work. And in 1932, when Frida's 25, she's in Detroit and she has a, she has a miscarriage. And it's bad. She she ended up painting about the experience, depicting herself in the hospital bed, bleeding with these like symbolic manifestations of her pregnancy and depression, like oh, no. tied to herself through these various like umbilical cords. Oh no! And it, it's really raw, and it does signal a shift in Frida's work in becoming like more forthright and uncensored about like really covering these painful subjects. That, of her life in her art. Poor Frida. Yeah, and I do think that's one aspect of why so many people connect with her art. Yeah. And it it is really powerful in that, like, traditionally the female form is depicted as, like, this idealized, sexualized version. Mm-hmm. But here Frida is painting about her chronic illnesses and her infertility and her emotional pain and really combating that just 
completely fictional expectations of what women should look like. Right. So, a year after that, the couple, they do head back to Mexico. And their relationship in Frida's health was pretty spotty after that. So, you mentioned about Frida's younger sister. Oh, no. At some point. Oh, no. No, no, no. Diego slept with her. Oh. Yeah, Diego slept with Frida's younger sister. (sighs) Okay, they did divorce sometime after that, but then, like, a year later, they were remarried. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Frida, she had two rules, though. Sorry, what is wrong with these sisters? Like, what? (laughs) Frida was like, yo, if we're getting remarried, um, one, I don't want any of your money. Right? She's like, I'll make my own money. And she's like, two, I'm not sleeping with you anymore. (laughs) And he gave in? Yeah. They, like, had a house. Well, technically, it was two houses with, like, a bridge attaching their quarters together. Oh, my God. What is the point? So that way, like, they could go home, but, like, two separate houses. Wait, why why were they even married? Like, what? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> That's a job while we're on our time machine. Oh, my pick. God. <laughs> but, I mean, at this point, I'm, it was 1939 when Frida was 32 when they married for the second time. Frida, she's already been working to establish herself independently, both artistically and financially, from her husband. That's amazing. And... Frida's artwork, it caught the attention of some European surrealist painters, right? But then more importantly, like, the founder of surrealism himself, André Breton. Okay. Was like, hey, I like your work. I think it's really good. Let me help you get some solo exhibitions and uh, some work in your galleries. Well, that's fucking banging. Yeah. Now, she didn't consider herself a surrealist, but I think for the whole thing, she was kind of like... Yeah, I'm not really one of you guys, but, like, thanks for the help. (laughs) Like, you guys invited me out to Paris for a show. Like, yeah, I'll come. Thanks, bro, but nah. I'll sleep with some sexy ladies. Why not? (laughs) I mean, if I ever went to France, I'd be all about that life. Lady here, lady here, lady here. (laughs) It's all good. Yeah, so she's showing in New York City. She's showing in Paris. She has her first solo show in New York City in 1938 at the age Ooh, of 31. Look at her. Yeah. You you beat her, didn't you? No, I have never had a solo show. No, but you will, right? I will. I don't know if I'll be 31. I've got less than a year in counting, so probably not. I. You might be 31. They're usually two years in the making. Oh. So if, you're, if you're going with a solid enough gallery... They have a backlog of shows. So they'll Still. be like, yeah, we can we can have a show, but, like, the next opening we have is, like, 18 months from now or 24 months from now or 36 months from now. That kind of thing. You're still amazing. Doing fine. You're going to end up in history books. I'm going to be forgotten in time. You're going to be my muse. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll take it. Yeah, and you bet there's going to be speculation. I'd be like... I don't, we just, this, Milena is regarded as the artist's best friend and muse, and 
You can see there's numerous paintings and sculptures. And oh, yes, this is the iconic Brazilian waxing one of their vulvas. Now there's <laughs> speculation they slept with one another. Just <laughs> we'll give them something to talk about. I'm so game. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, Megan's partner was her best friend's brother. Now, imagine the kind of issues that, yeah. Yeah. I had them all. We're going to be cackling from hell. I don't care. I'm always cold. I'll be warm and toasty there. That's fine. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. So, so Frida's 31 has a solo show in New York City. And then a few years later in 1943, she was included in Women Artists at Peggy Guggenheim's Art of the Century Gallery. Oh, okay. Guggenheim, baby. Peggy Guggenheim might sound familiar because she helped make Jackson Pollock famous. Also, isn't she just a Guggenheim? She, yes, that too. <laughs> so we talk about her a little bit in our episode with... Like, fuck Jackson Pollock. She's Guggenheim. I'm okay. Well, then she also helped out Lee Krasner, who we talked about, who oh, was fair. the wife of yeah. Jackson Pollock. Yeah, so yeah. it's for Frida, though, selling her work was tough because it was so unconventional for the day. Ah. And she did receive sales here and there, and she did a little bit of, like, commission work. But she did receive grant money. That was a big help. And then did pick up a teaching position as an art teacher working with working class kids. Oh, okay. But, I mean, overall... Working was really hindered by her health issues. So after a 1950 spine surgery, when she was 43, Frida spent an entire year in the hospital healing. What? Did she have that rig? She did, and she completely pimped out her hotel room. Ooh! So, like, decorated it with, like, flowers and paper streamers and like paper cut art and you know made it bright and colorful and apparently was always like flirting with like the hospital staff but friends and family would always come see her so it was a very lively place so i just want you to know that a frida kahlo original can now go between eight to twelve million dollars you know what that was i did not look up her resale value oh my god yeah that's like a chunk of money jesus christ yeah, but then you think, like, Jackson Pollock easily goes for $100 million. Wait, does it really? It does. Oh, God. Yeah, because Jackson Pollock's wife, Lee Krasner, I think the most her work has sold for to date has only been $10 million. Oh, no. Meanwhile, her husband goes for, like, $100 million. It's the only reason why I remember that number. Oh, fuck yeah. off. $140 million? This is the yeah. same dick who just peed on shit right my thinking pee on it he, he did splattered shit well i mean he was also drunk a lot of the time so wait who who peed on their artwork um there is a modern artist i forget the guy's name in the 90s he had a work called piss christ no it looked like a jackson pollock though oh i don't know about that but the, the guy i'm talking about took like a glass cylinder filled it with his piss and then submerged a crucifix in it and yeah the fucking pulp like freaked out oh god oh it was andy warhol who peed on his shit oh did he oh i didn't know that piss oxidation and what was the other i don't want to find out what other materials he's using 
piss oxidation and cum. That's gross. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, there's none of that. Sounds about right. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that was great. Please, please make sure that stays in. Okay, you're lucky. I love you. <laughs> All right. So after this year-long stay in the hospital, like going in the 1950s, Frida's health is in steady decline. Oh, no. Like she's just on so many painkillers. Apparently it caused like massive mood swings for her. Frida, no. And friends were like really worried. They were like so worried that they were like, guys, we should probably get like an exhibition of her work here in Mexico because we don't know how long she has. Oh, God. I mean, yeah. Great friends, but oh, God. (laughs) That's speculated. That's one of the things that prompted her first solo show in Mexico. And that was in 1953. So her doctor was like, you can't go to that show. He's like, you're on bed rest. You can't get up. So Frida was kind of like, fuck that. For the exhibition open, she had her bed shipped and placed in the very middle of the gallery. <laughs> and then she arrived by ambulance. Oh, my God. So that way, during her solo show exhibition, she could lay in her own bed and greet visitors in the gallery. Oh, oh my God. What a fucking badass. Yeah. I, Queen. Queen. <laughs> All the way around. And that was Frida's last show. Oh, no. Because she passed away? I She did. So a few months afterwards, like, her right leg needed to be amputated. No. She was severely depressed after that. She stopped painting for an entire year. And then in 1954, at the age of 47, she, she passed away. Now, official cause of death was listed as pulmonary embolism. Mm. But it's speculated that it, it might have been suicide. She just she had been sick for a few weeks, and people are like, I, "We think she might have known that she was dying, and maybe kind of helped it along, kind of thing." I mean, in that situation, I wouldn't be mad. Yeah, it's it's honestly like that's the one thing I like about veterinary medicine that I don't like about human medicine. I know, and it, there's a little bit of wiggle room here in the United States, yeah. but not much. But I, I do think that people should have the right to be able to die with dignity. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying that that was ex- explicitly the case in this instance, but I just in general, I think, you know, if you have a terminal disease, you, sh- you should have the right. Like where we are now is you can only die with dignity if the person that you gave the permission to decided to do so. And even then, like, that's when you don't have the ability to make that decision for yourself. So they have to do it for you. And even then, that's not very dignified. That, so. And that gets a little dicey legally. Yeah. Um, there is an instance of a journalist, I want to say. And she was diagnosed with dementia. Uh-huh. So she was only in her, I want to say, late 50s, early 60s. And after a few years, it got to the point where her memory just really started going and she was still able to be like, I, th- I think the time is near. She's like, let's have like a going away party. And so like her family and friends got together and they shared experiences. And she was like, I just remember being there and thinking to myself, 
I did that? I did all those things? Oh. And then after that, she was like, you know, family, husband, love every guy, you guys, but it's it's time to go. Like, yeah. If, before it goes any further, before she wasn't able to have that type of self-awareness and her own autonomy to make that decision. So, yeah, that was one of those things. I was like, NPR, you made me cry. Like, oh, God thanks. damn it, NPI. Why? Thanks, NPR. No, NPR. I literally just said NPI is the the digit, the 12 or so digit number that physicians have to help. Oh, like, that's their... I didn't know yeah. that. Yep, that's their little okay. license number. Okay. Yeah, we... <laughs> well, I, okay, again, I, I don't know if that was the case in Frida Kahlo's death, but the rights to her estate went to her husband, Aunt Diego. He passed away three years later in 1957. I hope he's burning in hell. <laughs> I, I don't know if he's as bad a guy as we think about to be. I eat trash. He's trash. All right, well, after his <laughs> passing... From there, control of the estate came in to a niece. And then fast forward quite a few years, it went to the niece's daughter. Oh. And this is where things get problematic, right? Oh, no. So, like, Frida's house and all her belongings and the artwork, like, they, they were preserved. Her house is a museum and, you know, I don't know about COVID regulations, but in normal times you can go there and visit. And that's, like, that's really cool, right? Well, in the early 2000s, a business person approached Frida's family and was like, hey, we can make so much money off of Frida. No. And thus, the Frida Kahlo Corporation was born in 2004. No. You know she turned over in her grave. Oh, so fucking hard. Oh, my God. She's like, do you guys realize how bad my back is? And I just fucking turned around over and over again. Several times. Several hundred times. So, technically, they claim to be founded with, quote, the mission to educate, share, and preserve Frida Kahlo's art, image, and legacy through the worldwide commercialization and licensing of the Frida Kahlo brand. Fight me. Yeah. Like, they just, they slap her fucking face on anything and everything. Like, whitewashing her in the process and completely ignoring the fact that she was queer and a communist. So, Frida Kahlo's last public appearance, it was at a communist rally protesting about the American potential, like, invasion or rather government overthrow of the current Guatemalan presidential regime. (laughs) Yeah, she's out there being, like, in her wheelchair, like, fuck you, America. Fucking hell. And, like, when her relationship with Diego, like, got really rocky, like, she threw herself into her political work and, like, from her teenage years, like, got involved again with the Communist Party of Mexico. And it does feature in some of her paintings. And, like, at her funeral, she had a hammer and sickle flag, like, draped over her coffin. Like, it's not, like, subtle at all. <laughs> and then, like, commercially. Oh, my God. Comrade. 
mentioned, like, the guy who, like, the affair that she would throw yeah. in Diego's face, like, he was, like, a leading communist figure of the day. Oh, my God. Such a leading communist figure that there were some other people who were like, yo, we got to fucking assassinate that motherfucker. Oh, my God. All I'm saying is that I really wish I was her reincarnated, but there's no way in hell. <laughs> I am not that cool, yo. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, commercially, like, that aspect of Frida's life is ignored, along with her numerous relationships with women. Mm. And then also ignored are Frida's disabilities. So, like, right, right, right. Because they don't even, they don't, like, they glaze over. They're like, oh, you know, she did have a bus accident and that fueled her artwork. But they, like, totally skipped over a billion other things. Because I learned, I learned about her in my, like, from my private school art classes that was like okay once a month not even like oh at least you had something yeah and like they they kind of like picked at it but they didn't even like scratch the surface they're like oh the disability brought on the monkeys in her paintings and like like, that was something that people in the Western world could understand. Like, they ha- there's a burden. Like, the monkeys represent the burden, whatever. But, like, everything else, like, the communism, like, just everything about her was just, like, completely ignored. Well, I think in part because of the Frito Kala Corporation. The corporation, yeah. They licensed out her image. And so a lot of it just by the apparent her, her skin's lightened a lot of the time. She doesn't mm-hmm. really have um, her iconic, like, upper lip hair. And mm-hmm. sometimes her unibrow, sometimes it's, like, less emphasized. And by a lot of accounts, like, she looks very able-bodied. I mean, like, fucking Mattel did a Frida Kahlo Barbie doll. Oh, no. Yeah, which is actually illegal to sell in Mexico. <laughs> because the rest of Frida's family were like, no, don't fucking form this corporation. Don't do that shit. Yeah. But the one family member went ahead and did it, and so there's a bit of a, a legal fight right now over who has ownership of her image and her likeness. And, you know, oh, it's been so many years no. after her passing, so technically it should be public domain. So that that's oh. a big issue in and of itself. Like, her face doesn't, like, what? Oh, it's they fucking licensed and trademarked it. and I'm looking at this Barbie, and I'm like, the only thing they have right is her, like, like tiny ass arms and everything else looks <sighs> it, yeah see it completely like whitewashes her into like these eurocentric beauty ideals that she explicitly pushed back against yeah like she kept that upper lip hair fuck off fuck off there is a researcher who did a really great job writing about all of that her name is priya prasad and she wrote in her essay, Commodifying Icons, the Commercialization of Frida Kahlo, quote, mm. Kahlo's iconic normative-defying appearance has been appropriated by corporations which transform her image into a figure that is normalized, white, and able-bodied, all while simultaneously capitalizing on the identity that made Kahlo famous in the first place. Feminism in this respect is being co-opted to sell consumers an iconic look, Rather than promoting a reconstructive of normative social political standards, presenting the image of Kahlo as a replacement for true rebellion against systems of inequality and domination. Oh my god. That's like one snippet. She's rolling over every goddamn day. But if you're interested in the idea of like the commercialization of like Frida Kahlo and her image 
that's a really good essay to go check out. It's in our show notes. You know, there's no paywall at all. Because, tr- I mean, truth be told, like, if you just Google Frida Kahlo and look at the images, like, you see these old-ass images. And, like, you see her. You see what she decided to present on herself. You see how proud she is to be her. And. Yeah, that's been, that's been like, stripped away. <sighs> so, it's, like, that same capitalization being done to, like, Frida it's really similar to the like type of rainbow capitalism that we're seeing during Pride Month. Right. Right? Like marketing queer content to be palatable to like a heteronormative audience. And that's exactly what's happening with Frida too. So in her case, it's really frustrating because like she obviously hated capitalism. Right. And like the corporation's making a shit ton of money off her likeness. But like end of day, Frida Kahlo is an internationally renowned artist who has impacted generations of artists to come after her. Correct. Because she was so uncompromising in how she presented herself and how much of herself that she put into her paintings. Exactly. So. It's shitty. It's complicated. But she was a queen. Yeah. She was really amazing. And there's there's so much written about her and so much content about her life that, like, I could have spent all today just talking about, like, the relationship she had, both with men and women and that dynamic and with Diego or, like, it's specifically just about her role in, like, the Communist Party in Mexico. Right. And uh, there's a lot of different ways you can approach it. So, yeah, if anyone's interested about some further reading, we'll definitely have stuff up on our show notes to check out. Oh, my God. Please include this in your show notes. I'm about to send that over to you right now. I don't know. if I'm sure you saw it. I'm sure you saw it. Oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Milana just sent me an image, a photograph of Frida that we will include on the show notes. So because of the braces that Frida would wear for her spine, it was it was pretty much like corsets, and right. she would paint on them quite a bit. And so Milana just shared one that includes like a fetus and also above that on the chest, like the hammer and sickle because she's fucking ride or die. <laughs> but, I mean, she really was. Beauty. So that's that's my queer, commie, feminist, differently abled artist for today. So I just... I don't know. This year in particular, just a little salty about all this fucking cashing in on Pride Month. And I was like, who can I do who would fucking hate that? And it's Frida Kahlo. Fucking so. Frida Kahlo. There you guys go. Hope you've enjoyed it. And and as always, if you've made it this far, you guys are pretty awesome. Thank Definitely you. Definitely appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if it's just me and his mom out there, I'm sorry we cuss so much. This is who I am. <laughs> I mean, Milena may or may not be the reincarnation of Frida Kahlo, so she kind of has to. Kind of have to. It's fine. Can't stifle that type of creativity. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> not sorry. All right. Well, Milena, if you want to go find out more about the people we've covered and seen some of the images that we've talked about, uh, where, where can they go? We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. Our Instagram and Facebook are under My Favorite Feminist. If you want to email us, we're at info at myfavoritefeminist.com. We have a Twitter that's at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. You can listen to us where you can listen to really any podcast. So Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Apple. Yes, if you have an Apple product, do that thing. And then let us know. It takes two seconds to like, subscribe. And then let us know, what do you humble brag about, May? Oh, man. 
I I have been a little douchey in the past and might have publicly shared that I actually legitimately do enjoy kale smoothies. So, sorry. What about you? Bitch, I'm not humble. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) I don't know. I might have humble bragged to my cousin yesterday when he asked me what I did and I was like, uh, we did an interview and I was freaking out because, like, who else would want an interview with me? Like, who wants to ask me questions? Who wants to ask Megan and me? Well, Megan. Everybody wants to ask Megan questions. Nobody wants to ask me questions, right? That was probably the closest thing. That is a perfect segue. So you guys can tell I'm obviously shit at social media promotion. But, Milana, if you want to plug the interview that we just did with a certain fellow feminist podcast. Fuck yeah. So we actually just did an interview for Get Over It, hosted by Sam and Caitlin. They are wonderful. And Mo. And Mo. Right. Mo just joined in on the crew. Yeah. So it's the the three hosts that are actually signed up to be doing the 2022 Mongol rally. You're going hundreds of hundreds of miles across continents. And so in raising awareness about it, they started their podcast to document their experiences, but they also interview and kind of cover topics of feminism, which just so happened to also include us for their newest hey, episode. Hey. So they ha- did a little segment on us and what like how we started, why we got to do what we did, what we cover, all that good stuff. But they have amazing content. We'll definitely link to that on our show notes so you guys can check that out and hear us on another format. So there's always that. So we're grateful to be included with their latest episode. So exciting. So yes, as always, again, you made it this far. We appreciate it. So we'll see you next time, guys. Bye. but they're bright green and they have a little horn on their head and they eat my fucking tomato plants and they can fuck off and die.